Now relax. Drive all thought from your mind. Concentrate. Concentrate. Welcome back to another episode of the Gin and Tonic Podcast. So where we left you off last, Isaac was asking me about my journey into biomedical engineering and I shared about my educational history and my inspirations. I spoke about my takeaways from biomedical engineering and how we are still scratching the surface when it comes to understanding some of the most complex systems within our body. Just this past week though, I attended a symposium where the scientists were using chemicals and proton beams to capture the transfer of neurotransmitters in the brains of mice, and it excited me that progress was being made. In this episode, though, we will continue from where we left off, and I talk about my most significant project in my honors program at NUS. Enjoy. talk about one particular project that you did or perhaps maybe the most exciting or the most um you know significant project that you've done in your university time um can you recall what project that would be um yeah sure i think my my final year project was was one in which i i um sweat blood and tears um yeah it was through sweat blood and tears that that i got through it um I had to develop a medical device or, mm-hmm. or not not necessarily a medical device. I, I had to develop a device um, which would give a haptic feedback. So that means like vibrations or or um, it can be, yeah, it can be through the form of vibrations or electrical impulses. Okay. Um, for the deaf and hard of hearing. Oh, okay. But I, as... That was the title of the project, but uh, as I got to understand the deaf community a little more, mm-hmm. um, I realized that there would be no market for the deaf because the deaf have been deaf all their life. Or oh, th- at least, um, deaf with a capital D mm-hmm. refers to people who have not been hearing since birth. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And they have their own community and have adapted to their lack of a sense right. with other means. Mm-hmm. Um a lot to do with touch or visual cues. I see, yeah. Um, the hard of hearing is much larger group. So so in the deaf community, if I remember correctly, there are about 1,500 to 2,000 people who are deaf, capital D. In Singapore. In Singapore. Okay. But those hard of hearing is somewhere in the range of 400 to 500,000. 
Oh wow, that's a but that huge. that is a big spectrum from those who are mildly hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. Think of uh, your ama. Oh okay, uh, they, yeah. yeah. People who who are like losing their hearing due to age, right? Um, mm-hmm. and it can be from very mild to pretty much not non hearing at all. They would probably need like uh the hearing aid. Perhaps, hearing aids, you know? yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but even hearing aids is merely amplifying whatever's coming in. Mm-hmm. So if they don't have all the structures within their ear, hearing aids do nothing for them. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, and of course, in, in that time, it can be very disorienting. A lot of practices you which you've had or habits which you cu- incul- uh, cultivated mm-hmm. when you were hearing are now useless. Mm-hmm. Sounds which you would otherwise be able to identify immediately. Okay. You wouldn't be able to when you're losing your hearing because actually the first the first um, set of frequencies that um, tend to go mm-hmm. are the very high frequencies. Okay. Like, are very piercing. Think mm. fire alarm. Think siren. Like like very screeching sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And so the. The whole motivation behind my project was that this could be a hazard. Mm-hmm. Uh, think a smoke detector is going off and a hard of hearing individual is not able to just hear it. Just can't hear it, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, of course you could smell the smoke, but like perhaps if it happens in the night. Or if, you know, for some reason they're not able to access any of that. Yeah. Or or like a gas detector mm-hmm. um, in the case where you've left the stove on. Oh, okay. Um, or even more first world problem kind of things like um, you left your alarm is one of them okay um, right. and like or you left your fridge door open and it's losing it's losing oh then it gives off the small little it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah that kind of sound yes I remember that um, yeah so my I, I went and looked at the state of the art mm-hmm. uh, the state of the art being the devices that ex- already exist okay um, and found that a lot of the technologies had not been updated in a number of years. Or rather, the technology as a whole had not updated in a number of years. I see. A lot of the devices were standalone. Mm-hmm. So, it was maybe a bed shaker to shake the bed when... Oh, So, okay. that, that that is the hard of hearing's equivalent of an alarm clock. Or, right. Or a deaf person might use that mm-hmm. to wake themselves yeah. up. Okay. Um, or a flashing light in the living room. To indicate that someone's at the door pressing the doorbell, ah, so it would okay, produce okay. no sound, but instead have a flashing light. Ooh, okay, okay. But like I said, these were all standalone; mm-hmm. they weren't interconnected. Right. So okay, my okay. idea was, why don't I make a smart home mm-hmm. for a hard of hearing individual? Oh wow, okay. Especially in Singapore, because a lot uh, old people may live in the vicinity of their children, mm-hmm. but sometimes some old people live alone. Right. Um, yeah. We see that. Sometimes around the uh, rental flats, which yes. I sometimes volunteer at you know, around like Jalan Kuko around Chinatown. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So imagine being hard of hearing and living by yourself. It must be a frightening experience, actually. For sure. But my I, later on in the project, when I was going when I was going through it uh, a bit further, I was also diving deeper into. Um, I'm sure you've always heard that the the elderly are always very resistant to wearing hearing aids and. Mm-hmm. Um, those things like things oh. which could help them I actually I actually don't know that okay uh, right um, so I, I did research about it and it turns out that a lot of uh, elderly don't like technology as a whole oh there's this whole it, it was cool because I was doing my FYP at the same time I was doing a 
technology mod for the agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I was doing research on for both modules. So they kind of like uh, and inter- they intertwine with intertwine. one another. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. Nice. Um, there was a Hong Kong paper that said um, over sixty percent of of agent people in Hong Kong are are resistant to technology. Well, that's a lot of a lot of them. Actually, yeah, 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 and that that's over the age of I think it was sixty five. Don't don't quote me on that one. Okay, right. Um, but the reason why they they found that was because um of user experience and or perceived diffic- perceived complexity. Right. So they think it's difficult to. They use. think it's difficult. They are anxious about it. So this this comes from like first first hand a uh, first hand source. My mother, um, my mother was like uh, around the turn of the century was like working with computers. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. as around the nineties or eighties when when computers were were first becoming like rather consumer and mainstream. Right. She shared with me that when she first uh, started using a computer, she was always afraid because she was afraid that she would destroy it or like <laughs> it would break it somehow oh. or that it would explode <laughs> I found that awfully cute but then that that story came back to me when I was thinking about like the resistance to accept technology mm-hmm. comes from anxiety and perceived complexity like you're afraid that it's going to I mean blow up or yeah, you know, malfunction or, or because malfunction. you've yes. or did I do something wrong right. did, I, did I do irreversible damage mm, and it's going to be expensive to fix I and guess ba- and back in the day a regular PC was like three to five thousand dollars right That's even a very basic thing. one mm. yeah so um, then I had to go and figure out one one I wanted it to be interconnected with all the devices that you find in a normal house so kind of like you know in our normal smart house you can control the lights the exactly, fan everything with exactly. your phone exactly um, but this one I wanted to be a wearable oh so okay. it was it was in the form of a a um, a wa- uh, like a smart watch mm-hmm. uh, which you strap to your wrist mm-hmm. but I had a bi- I, I did a basic iteration of it so I have these oh actually underneath the table if you look here okay. or maybe maybe like later um, <laughs> I have these I have this uh, Arduino, which is a microcontroller. Okay. It allows me to do one to two simple tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and with something like a Bluetooth module, I can connect two to get two or three, two or more together. Okay. So that was my idea. My prototype was going to be uh, multiple, multiple Arduinos communicating with one another, simulating the um, home appliances. I see. Okay. Um, and so that w- in the interconnectedness was one of the features. The other feature was that I wanted to distinguish the devices from one another. So mm. say, for example, someone rings the doorbell, it produces a, a certain vibration pattern. So it might be z, z, z. And then at the same time, um, if you left your fridge door open, it might mm-hmm. go, it might produce a pattern that goes z. Oh, okay. So variation between the devices that that are giving feedback to your smartwatch. Right. So I guess that would kind of simulate like the different types of sounds that exactly. you hear from each. And the last, the last of the three was that I wanted it to have zero in user interaction or next to zero user interaction. Meaning that the user doesn't have to input anything. Is exactly. It? Wow. Okay. So that right. would alleviate 
all three problems. And, and also in the form of a watch, which was the finalized, would, which would be the final product, mm-hmm. it reduces the stigma that, that uh, people perceive, or at least the older generation perceive when someone is using a, a accessibility device. I see. Because, I mean, I've, I've read papers where um, the elderly are unwilling to wear hearing aids because they associate the deaf with being stupid. Oh yeah, I I guess I guess that might be uh might have been a common yeah. Uh, so the stigma then, the stigma right? exists still, um. So it's just making sure that I'm making the user the end user as comfortable as possible, mm-hmm. uh, while ensuring that um I update all the technologies that that have fallen behind. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I I mean. I think this is this is a lot of amazing stuff that I'm I'm hearing from you and actually I'm I'm learning a lot about biomedical engineering. Uh I think on one end, I mean I came in thinking that biomed engineering was just, you oh know, designing X-ray machines and uh So there is definitely that. Um there is always there is always a room for improvement when it comes to to imaging. Mm-hmm. And back in the day when X-ray was was first invented, um you could say that that was an early form of biomedical engineering. Right. Okay. Um, and actually, a lot of the jobs that biomedical engineers do are for hospitals doing maintenance on these machines. Oh, okay. So it's not just about like you know, um, inventing all the new stuff. It's also about maintaining exactly, all these exactly. different devices. Because if there's no if there's no maintenance, then our medical system will fail. Right, and that's and that's I mean that's something that we don't see every day, I guess. Right, of course, I mean, of course. You see the doctors, you see the nurses, but you don't see who maintains the equipment, all the the the, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, right? Yep, exactly. Wow. Yeah, and and it's all and I mean when you mentioned about you know the deaf community and and this, it doesn't. I mean, my first thought is that it doesn't seem to me as a very overly complicated project I'm sure there are a lot of intricacies involved but it seems like you know something that an everyday person might overlook like yeah. I, I wouldn't even think about like uh, you know the kind of problems that it might face and you know what kind of solutions that might need to come up um, for such a you know like a day to day issue I guess yeah I, I guess I would add, I would add that like while I am proud of that project it wasn't necessarily biomedical engineering it was more engineering Solutions. I see. Right. Because there's no medical outcome. Okay. Or rather, it it alleviates a medical a, a medical symptom, which mm-hmm. is the loss of hearing. All right. So this has been quite the adventure, actually, learning a lot about um, you know, biomedical engineering and its many you know uses in in helping you know, create solutions and, and, you know, helping to diagnose problems. I just, um, you know, to conclude, I actually want to um, go back to, you know, what we started with, you know, the current context, you know, we are, well, for lack of a better word, that keeps getting repeated, you know, we are living in trying times, you know, COVID, uh, a COVID season, you know, um, what has biomedical engineering actually, you know, helped um, with this current crisis? Um, sure. So I think, one is the generation of the polymerase chain reaction, uh, or at least those machines which run this reaction, where they use a clever manipulation of uh, reagents to um, replicate a target DNA and also have a 
reagent that reacts with that target DNA to cause uh, bioreflection. Bio I wouldn't say it's bioluminescence. Uh, so when you shine a, a light on it, mm-hmm. um, in darkness, you will see a reflection from those reagents or rather the if it's a positive reaction. So that is the way that we tell whether someone has COVID or not. Okay, so is um so wait let me let me just get it straight. It's uh the, the test is basically replicating a person's DNA and um reacting with an agent to see if um the virus is present. I guess exactly. So it's taking it's taking a sample from somebody's body, mm-hmm. usually a, a nasal pharyngeal swab, which goes all the, the way nasal swab all the in, way inside. Yep, yep. Um. And then checking whether there uh, there is a presence of COVID virus, COVID no, the COVID virus, SATU virus, yeah, yeah, right. As and is this a sort of new test or is this, uh, you know, something that's existed and we so just used it for? I COVID? think PCR has existed since the nineteen eighties. Oh wow! But we are currently in between the second generation and third generation of of the technology, um, where. QPCR was was this technology where you would run a test for half you would run the reaction for half an hour take a sample uh, and then continue running the the reaction mm-hmm. while the reaction is continuing with that sample you would check for the number of or the amount of bioluminescence I see beyond okay. a certain number of reactions or beyond a certain number of cycles mm-hmm. we can effectively rule out that someone has COVID. Okay. Um, but it, it's quite laborious in the sense that we need to take samples every time we run one of the react, like run one cycle. Right. The third generation does this in a clever way where, where it spreads out the entire sample with the reagents mm-hmm. across many different um, holes. And uh, you're doing many little reactions okay. all at once. And then you would see the number of holes which shine under a certain light. Which tells you whether... Tells you whether there is, uh, there is the virus and in what quantity. Oh, so it, it goes even more specific. So it goes even more specific to the number of copies of, copies of um, so virus how, DNA. So I guess how much the, the virus is spread throughout this person's body. So the cool thing is that you can use this for the effectiveness of drugs. Oh. So when it comes to like bac- bacteria and, and using drugs to, to treat it, mm-hmm. um, say I have sample, I have uh, sample A and s- I have a virus over three different samples. Right. In test tube A, I do nothing. Okay. In test tube B and C, I have medication A and medication B. Mm-hmm. I can tell you exactly how effective medication A and medication B are mm-hmm. because I know the reduction from the control So like from the, the control case. From the control, like, you know, it has this amount of uh, virus and in test tube A maybe like Bacteria. Bacteria, sorry. Yeah. And maybe in test tube A it has um fifty percent less virus. Yeah, B. exactly. So oh. you can know exact exact numbers. And I I just wanna I just wanna see if you, you I mean I'm not sure if you know but is this how they test for the efficacy of the the new vaccine? Um, I don't think so. This is more towards a clinical study. Okay. Where people are injected with the vaccine and then 
perhaps like exposed to COVID. Oh, okay, okay. Right. And then seeing whether it's effective in reducing the symptoms in I the see. same way that a flu virus would. Oh, okay. So not necessarily like the vaccine, but maybe some of the treatments for COVID-19, I guess. Sorry, I didn't catch. I didn't. I don't understand. I mean, on one hand, you have the the vaccine, which is supposed to, you know, help to immune. Ah, so like therapeutics, like and like the antibodies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't have enough information. Right. To, okay. Yeah. No worries. But like, I I think this is you know, given us uh, an idea of how biomedical engineering has actually evolved over the years and how you know we are able to you know more intricately understand and more efficiently test for you know this sort of virus and and. Um, you know, uh, not just you know about this virus, but like you know, in peacetime, I guess so called. If we are in a war with this virus, you know, in peacetime, how um, it helps us with many all sorts of different solutions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we've talked a lot about you know what is in bioengineering. You know what um you know some of the current technologies that exist, um, what it actually is, and you know. Even talking about your FYP, um, you know what what is what can possibly be done, you know. And I like to talk a little bit more about the bleeding edge. You know what uh, are the frontiers in biomedical engineering? Where are we pushing those boundaries? You know. I think a lot of the the attention right now is focused on um, treating injuries or or trying to generate tissue, because. Um, Actually, to treat burns, mm-hmm. um, there have been technologies such as the three D printing of skin. Oh yes. So into yeah. into the cavities of burn victims, which mm-hmm. then um, sort of like sim- stimulate the cells to to proliferate and fill that region again with skin. Oh. So okay. that that is one example, but I think the even more, um, I guess, hopeful hopeful outcome is that we can 3d print organs so oh. 3d print functional organs right um, and or there are different methods for that there was this one where you decellularize um say a heart mm-hmm. so there was this experiment when they remove all the cells from a pig's heart mm-hmm. and then injected stem cells and then tried to fill the the pig's heart which was decellularized with human tissue oh, so okay. that you could build it into a transplantable heart. Wow. So the cool part is that um, if this works, you are sort of like going, be, you solve multiple problems at once. Um, one is there is no risk of rejection because it's your own cells. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two, you reduce the, the donor wait list. Mm-hmm. Just because they're now more, I mean, simple supply and demand. There's more supply now. Yeah. Um, and more hearts to go around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even actually, that there's there's this company called Osteopore in Singapore, and what they do is, um, they print out a plastic scaffold, mm-hmm. which they then implant into into people's skulls, uh, for bone growth, like bone growth to happen. So actually, we have a material called hydroxyapatite, um, and it's made up of a similar uh, chemical composition as bone. Okay. And when you put it, they are typically used in like bone screws. Okay. So um, it's normally on the screw section, mm-hmm. and when it gets drilled into the bone, okay, the bone or the cells interact with the hydroxyapatite and then start forming bone around it. 
So then it's anchoring everything together. Wow. So osteopore is trying to do something similar where it's providing a a scaffold, like, you know, a scaffold on a building. Right, it's, yes. It's, it's providing structure, but it's also providing space. So space is so important because um, as cells populate that area, mm-hmm. it needs a way for waste materials to leave okay. as well as for nutrients to fill. And it also provides space for new blood vessels to form. Oh. So this technology is already in use. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so this ties back to, to the the tissue engineering uh, example that I was providing earlier where uh, we don't know a whole lot about growth factors. but we do. It's not. It's just we don't know about growth factors as a whole, how they interact with one another. Mm-hmm. We know what individual growth factors do. And then through like some empirical testing, we can sort of like get a small cocktail blend of growth factors um, to try and build blood vessels in an area where there's missing tissue to try and build or create tissue from from uh, a scaffold, which can come in the form of like uh, a plastic mesh or right. uh, a matrix, which is uh, just a fun a fun way to say like a nutritious gel. That's pretty amazing. I mean, like this is essentially you're you're giving the body the structure, and then after that is essentially just doing the rest and kind of recovering ev- everything that might have been broken or missing. Exactly, exactly. So actually, I have a I have first hand experience with that because uh, I needed some surgery for my jaw. Okay. Um, and a couple of those screws, titanium screws with the hydroxyapatite, were drilled in into my face. Oh. Um, and at some point I was having a bit of pain, so I went back to my surgeon or my like yeah my uh. My dental surgeon and he was mm-hmm. like, okay, we can take out the screws from this end. But apparently, sometimes hydroxyapatite can stimulate the bone to grow a little too much. Oh. So actually, when he opened, no. opened my face up the second time, uh, there are no scars because it was underneath the, the oh, gum. Oh, right. Okay. Um, he was like, oh, there's a... And I was awake for this. Mm-hmm. Um, funny story. It was my birthday in 2018 and I decided to do it uh, at 8 in the morning before my <laughs> 10 a.m. class. Regrets. On my birthday. Um, and he was like, oh, there's bone growth around the screws. I'm going to have to chisel chisel the excess bone off. That's not something you want. <laughs> <laughs> and I was awake for that. So it was like, oh my gosh. It is. Well, I mean, it was anesthetic. So I didn't feel a thing. Uh, apart from the like knocking against my face, but yeah, it just sounds like a interesting things thought. like that. So I, I think the I would say it is far from being a science at this point in time. Mm. Um, we know that it works, but uh, sometimes the outcomes can be a little unexpected. Right. I mean, w- with all things, I guess we're we're still. I mean, this is the frontier, right? We're still yeah, trying things out, but like it's it's still amazing. Like uh, like you know the kind of discoveries that, that we're making and, you know, who knows what will happen in the future. For sure, for sure. What, 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 would it, what it would mean for, you know, our human lives, our health, you know, like how we, you know, basically live our lives. You yeah, know? very much so. Right. Okay, so um, I also want to talk about another thing. Um, you've learned a lot, um, I guess, a lot of things during uh, your time in biomedical engineering. I was wondering if you actually know anything that would actually um, apply in our daily lives, you know, like help us in our everyday life. So talking about growth factors once again, sorry, I love tissue engineering and it's, it's probably the 
topic where I most I I put most of my interest and time into. Um, so, uh, something that would change would change the way that you you sort of like do things. Um, is if you've ever had a blister before mm-hmm. and and it doesn't or even it could even be like a burn kind of blister where your skin oh. blisters. Yep. Um, as long as the skin hasn't broken, you shouldn't poke it and release the fluid. Okay, that's a problem for me because I've done that lots of times. So actually, it heals a lot faster if you leave the blister intact. I'll tell you why. Because um, when cells die, they return to the matrix. So when, or rather, when cells are damaged, mm-hmm. they break themselves down into the proteins that 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 form, that them, form them but those proteins go back into the cocktail of growth factors mm-hmm. and actually modify the entire collection so the cocktail just got a few more ingredients okay and those ingredients then signal to other cells what they need to do okay so um if if you were to like pop the the blister and release the fluid mm-hmm. a lot of the dead cells do not go back into the into the matrix and then it needs to re the the matrix needs to take more time to to signal all the cells on what to do to to kind of form form back and recover exactly skin, exactly right? yeah yeah oh so i guess like the dead cells do kind of serve a purpose they don't exactly just, they don't just know. die so the the reason why you might you might want to wash it out and clean it Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because of a a like sanitary concern or or like you're you're worried about the germs that are on your skin. Well, as long as the skin hasn't broken, no bacteria is gonna pen- like penetrate and go in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. All you need to do is just clean. Make sure you clean the surface and maybe like protect the blister so that you don't Accident. rub it against anything and accidentally tear it. Mm. Um. But just leave it alone. It'll heal significantly faster, and that's basic tissue engineering for you. Wow. Okay. I guess, I guess, I mean, it does have applications and, you know, the small little things as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I, I think I've uh, learned a lot and I hope our listeners have actually learned a lot about uh, biomedical engineering from today's interview. So thank you so much, Jonathan. No, not at all. It's my pleasure. I think like biomedical engineering is nearly an inexhaustive topic. Uh, I could talk for ages about a different topic. Oh, multiple topics. So I look forward to doing this again. Right, hopefully, yeah. Thank you very much. So um, my name's Isaac, and my guest is... Jonathan. And thank you for listening for the gin- to the Gin and Tonic Show. Once again, we would like to thank Veritas and Gust for their permission to use their song, Concentrate. Concentrate. Concentrate.